Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Nicola Upson's Josephine Tay mystery series began as research for a biography about a writer who captivated her imagination. And it grew into the highly acclaimed, long-running mystery series we know today, centered on the life of one of literature's lone wolves. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Nicola talks about why Tay is in a class of her own, how the 20s and 30s are still relevant for 21st century women, and her Cambridge radio show. But before we get to Nicola, just a reminder that the show notes for this episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to everything we talk about today, including how to tune into Nicola's radio show and a picture of her talkative cat, Betsy Trotwood. And now here's Nicola. Hello there, Nicola, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. It's great to be here, Jenny. I can't believe we're actually so far apart. So this is lovely. I know. Technology is a wondrous thing. Um Look, I always do, it's predictable, but I like to begin at the beginning with that once upon a time question. Was there an an epiphany moment where you thought, I've just got to write fiction or my life won't be what it's meant to be? And if so, what was the catalyst for it? Well, I feel a bit fraudulent about it, Jenny, really, because there wasn't that sort of moment. Um, I I owe it to Josephine Tay, who obviously we are going to come to talk about. Um, But the series really began about 25 years ago when I read her book, The Franchise Affair, and I thought it was just an extraordinary novel, so different from any of the ones written by her contemporaries. And I wanted to find out more about her. Because as much as we analyse Tay, she has a wonderful characterization, a brilliantly rich sense of place. But there was just that voice. You know, it, it, it's less hard to quantify than those reasons. And um, I found out that she, in her lifetime, was uh, known just as well, if not better, as a playwright. She had several hits on the, the West End stage, one in particular called Richard of Bordeaux. And I thought it was very strange that somebody who had achieved as much as she had done in those two very different spheres hadn't had a full-length biography written about her. So that's what I set out to do. Um, I'd only written nonfiction up to that point. I'd done some arts journalism and uh, an art book and a theatre book. And it was the Tay biography that, that I wanted to do. But as you probably know, she was a very private woman. She rolled the carpet of her personal life up quite closely and cleverly behind her. And eventually the gaps became as intriguing as the facts. And it was actually my partner, Mandy, who said to me one evening, we were we were staying at a National Trust holiday cottage on a beautiful Cornish estate. And uh, yes, we had had a glass of wine or two. And she said to me, oh, for God's sake, just make it up. And that really is is how the series started, to tell a truthful picture of Tay's life uh, through a series of um, fictional murder mysteries in the genre that we know and love her best for these days. So purely by accident, uh, to to answer your question, and 
if it weren't for Josephine Tay, I don't know that I'd have written fiction at all, let alone as quickly as I did. It's interesting that you really, it seems, came to truth through imagination rather than fact. Yes, I think I think that's true. And for somebody who was as complex and in some ways contrary and contradictory as Josephine Tay was, as you probably know, Josephine Tay wasn't her real name. Her real name was Elizabeth McIntosh. But she also had uh, another pseudonym, Gordon Daviat, that she wrote plays and historical fiction under. And she often referred to herself as a chameleon. It's a word that appears quite often in her letters with typical self-awareness, I have to say. And so for a figure like that who shapes and shifts and reading her letters, I've done lots of research and read a lot of Tay's letters and a lot of the letters that were written to her and about her. And she does indeed have different personalities depending on who she was with. And I think we all do that to some extent. We're all different people to our friends and to our family and to strangers and professionally at work. But she did it to extremes and she was also very good at being a bit of an outsider with those wonderful observations that people who love and know her novels will recognise. And so that made her a good fictional figure and a good detective, I suppose. So you've got this fascinating series now where Josephine appears as herself and quite a lot of the events in the different books relate directly to her life and did truthfully occur. And then, of course, some of it is is completely the product of your imagination. You've now done seven published books and the eighth one coming out in a couple of months. Um, And you've mentioned that the first book, that franchise affair, was one that broke all the rules. Can you perhaps just explain for us a little what those rules were and how she broke them? Certainly. Uh, Well, for a start, the franchise affair, not all her books are like this, but some of them are, but the franchise affair doesn't even have a murder at its heart, uh, which most golden age, most crime novels, in fact, do. And, I, you know, having written these books, I know how hard it is to keep up the suspense and the interest uh, of the reader without falling back on those conventions of the the body. Um, You know, they're very important moments in most crimes. But she didn't. She, in 1948, published a book that was ostensibly about a young woman who had allegedly been kidnapped and abused by two older women. I mean, in 1948, that's quite strong, dark stuff. And I think that's one of the things I love about Tay is that she stays so relevant and she has such a modern voice. Mm. Um, Her hero, Robert Blair, he was a country solicitor. You know, he wasn't a superhuman amateur sleuth. He wasn't a ploddy policeman. He was just an, an ordinary man who was taken over by circumstances. And I think what's interesting about that book in particular is that on the one hand, reading it now in, um, in modern times, it feels like uh, a nostalgic snapshot of an England that's gone forever. You know, you pick it up and you feel the sun on your face. There's that warmth to it. But look below the surface. And it's a very dark book. It's a book about people being persecuted by the community that they're supposedly a part of. It's a book about mob violence. It's a book about prejudice and anger. And it's interesting, having read it quite recently um, in a a sort of post-Brexit world here in Britain, it, again, it has that kind of modern relevance and it it reinvents itself like its author did. So I suppose that's what I mean, really. The, The golden age rule book, the the closed list of suspects, all those wonderful things that are 
expertly done by a lot of Tay's contemporaries. She didn't feel the need to do that. Um, and in fact, maybe if she hadn't had a, a series inspector in Alan Grant, who, again, that's another thing she does originally in the franchise affair, he turns up on the wrong side of justice. I mean, that's quite a brave thing to do. But if those books hadn't featured a serious detective, maybe we wouldn't necessarily think of them as first and foremost crime novels. We think of them as psychological novels. And um, I think she did bridge the golden age and the contemporary in a way that paved the way for people like Patricia Highsmith and P.D. James and Ruth Rundle. Interesting, as I hear you talk, you know, it goes through my mind that perhaps she's also a mentor for you in your writing because your crime novels aren't exactly, they're not, they're not the standard crime novel. They definitely, you know, you don't have, you don't have the country house, everybody sitting around trying to solve the murder, but you do have a social group and social gatherings that kind of mirror that, but in a much more challenging way. Um, do you have you taken her as as a mentor as well? I think she's certainly a mentor for any crime writer. Really, I think she is. Val McDermott has often referred to her as the crime writer's crime writer, and I, I think that's very true because she teaches. Not she. She doesn't teach us as to be. Um, particularly brilliant mystery writers. I would, maybe this is controversial, I would say that her plots are not the best thing about her writing at all. But she teaches us to be brave, I think. And the one thing that perhaps I would like to emulate her more than any other is that each book that I write, I hope is different from all the others rather than sticking to one path because she was a very unpredictable writer although she did have the serious characters who reappeared, every book that she wrote is different in some way. They have different feels to them, different atmospheres. Um, and, and I hope that in that way, uh, my books might, might um, emulate hers. Also, I think she's a mentor as, as, a, as a woman and as a person because I could hug her for living through the years that she lived through because those interwar years, particularly for independent women like Tay, um, are fascinating to write about. And through her and coming to these books with a strand of truth and history and social context to them has introduced me to so many people that I wouldn't otherwise have known about. I mean, for example, it was irresistible because Tay had a film made by Alfred Hitchcock. It was inevitably cast in the runes that I would write a book in Fear in the Sunlight that had a fictional meeting between Tay and Hitchcock. But if it weren't for that, I would never really have known about Alma Revel, his wife, mm. who was, she, he, she entered the film industry before he did. She was so influential on his work. And when we talk about a Hitchcock movie, actually, we're talking about a real partnership. And I think one of the finest things about Hitchcock is the way that he collaborated with and credited his wife. But So it's women like that. Rowena Cade, who started the Minnock Theatre in Cornwall, where I set, set a book. Uh, Mary Size, who was the deputy governor of Holloway Jail and did so much for conditions in women's prisons. All these people, I've, Tay has opened the door to for me, and, I, and I, I'm very grateful to her for that. You mentioned the role of the position of women in those interwar years, and I'm just wondering, was it partly that after they'd seen some um, emancipation during the First World War through very poor circumstances, being forced into jobs because the men weren't available, 
they, there was then this strong drive to try and push them back into their place after the war ended, and also the lack of men to marry as well, in quotes. I mean, it changed social expectations a lot. Are those two of the factors that you'd be referring to? Yeah, definitely. It's absolutely spot on. I think the, the First World War, it's hard, I think, for us to even conceive of how seismic a change that must have been for people. And for some women, it was a time of great grief and great loss, uh, because as you so rightly say, they they lost husbands and lovers and brothers and sons, and the world was never the same again. Um, for some women, and I would strongly believe that Josephine Tay was one of these, it was a moment of liberation, because not only were there the the professional expectations had been moved on so greatly, as you as you just said, um, they did jobs that they would never have, have thought of doing. And in fact, the book I've got coming out is very much a book about that. But also socially, romantically, emotionally, their expectations were different. Tay no longer had to face that path of marriage and children as automatically being inevitable for her, uh, which is a path that I don't think that she she would that would have sat very happily with her. So it was it was a, a very, very double-edged sword. Um, a great, great sadness, but great opportunities and great freedom as well. And I think when I came to these books and set the first one in 1934. I think I underestimated how much the shadows of that war would still be hanging over all the characters I was writing about, whether or not they'd experienced the war directly. It, it really did. I mean, the, those wars so did meet in the middle, you know, the shadow of one and the looming prospect of another. Mm, yeah, yeah. You have referred to her career as a playwright, and there is another very interesting little intersection there, and that is that she helped launch Sir John Gielgud into superstardom. I gather that he, he was a major respected classical actor, but her play Richard of Bordeaux catapulted him into a, a much more popular um, stardom. And you've talked with him a little about his association with her, haven't you? Yes, I have. And I think that, again, the war is partly responsible for the huge success of that Richard of Bordeaux play. It was a, a modern reworking of, of Richard II. It was, I mean, she says herself in, in a letter to a friend, you know, she thought she'd written Tale of Bloody Revenge and actually she'd written a play about pacifism. And I think it just completely hit the moment. And Gielgud was a huge part in that. Um, he was a, a Shakespearean classical actor. He directed Richard of Bordeaux as, as well as starred in it. Um, but this play was just, and, and I worked in theatre myself, so I know you don't get moments like that in theatre. People went 30, 40, 50 times to see it. Wow. It's lots, lots of the cast um, would were, were so wealthy after it that they bought sort of country cottages, Gilgood included, on the, on the Suffolk-Essex borders. Um, and I remember P.D. James telling me how, as a young girl, she was so cross because she couldn't afford the train ticket to go to London and see the play that everybody was talking about. So it really was a unique moment of theatrical history. And I think because it, it chimed so well, and it had that wonderful, elegant design by Motley, the trio of stage and costume designers, and everything about it was just spot on. But I think for that, that reason, because it was of its moment, 
her plays haven't lasted and dated as well as her fiction has. Um, but that's not to decry how popular and successful they were at the time. So am I right in assuming that she was a relative unknown? She she deliberately wrote a play which she imagined from the beginning Sir John would star in, and then she pitched it to him. Now, that seems to me to take quite a lot of audacity. Um, is that the right way to frame it? Was that how it, it happened? Uh, yes, it was. Um, that's that's what he told me. That's what he's written um, in his accounts of how that, that play came about. And it, I think you're spot on. It, it, it was a huge amount of audacity and nerve and confidence in the work. He also talked a lot about how he, when she first sent it to him, it wasn't really in the, a form that was um, performable as it was. And he suggested amendments or cuts or changes. And he didn't really expect to hear back. But she did. She made those changes absolutely beautifully. And of course, the rest is history. And it, it's interesting. I think one of the things that shows how quickly she came on um, after that is she didn't really have a huge um, impact in the rehearsals and staging of the play. That was very much Gilgood's thing. But by the time you get to um, another play of hers called The Laughing Woman, which also was on at the West End, and it wasn't anywhere near the success, but it was loosely based on the uh, the sculptor Gaudio Broschka. And he, <laughs> there's a, there's some brilliant letters in the collection at the, the British Library where she is writing to Gielgud, telling him really effectively she doesn't think he'll be quite right for that part, <laughs> almost challenging him to be good enough for that part. So that, that that shows that shows how much she came on, and I think really that fierce arrogance about her work that confidence about her work is one of the things I love about her because she was damn right it's good work and and you see that there's this touching things about it like she she talks about seeing the franchise affair in I think it's the franchise affair in the Times book club window and it giving her the same feeling of joy and elation as seeing Richard of Bordeaux go up in lights at the uh, at the new theatre so there's those those bits that we all feel as writers, you know, that excitement when we kind of can have enough detachment to see our work being appreciated. But there was always this fierce belief in her stuff. I mean, I've got a letter of hers where she writes to somebody just before The Daughter of Time came out and says that she really does think it's something genuinely new within the genre, which, of course, it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've, we've lots of those detectives holed up in bed solving crimes from their bedside since then. But she was the first to do it with Alan Grant. And so, yeah, nerve, pluck, confidence in her own ability, I think they're all things that we associate with her. And where did that come from? Because there's not a lot in her background, is there? I mean, I must admit that when I started reading you, I haven't read any Tay, that is a confession, but when I started reading you, I did refer to a couple of the Tay biographies and... Um, there isn't a lot in her family background that would indicate that she would have that sort of, um, it must have been totally inborn, don't you think? I think so. I think her mother was a huge influence on her. Her mother um, was a teacher as well. And I think they were very, very close. I think her mother's early death was um, a great tragedy mm. in her life. Mm. I think um, she came from a different social background to Tay's father. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. certainly, I think she would have appreciated very greatly what her daughter went on to do. And I think 
Tay would say that she was perhaps an inspiration in that sense. But I think the very fact that she grew up in Inverness, her father actually um, was, he was a fruiterer, but he worked his way up too. He had a huge amount of determination and hard work and grit. And he was determined that his daughters were going to get um, you know, a decent education and decent opportunities. So he was ambitious too. And I think that although it's not necessarily directly traceable, as you say, I think there's a lot in her background that contributed to that confidence and that determination, if only to be bloody minded in Inverness, really, and yeah. and to have that have that success in a in a in a small town community where it perhaps wasn't expected of the fruiterer's daughter to, to go on and have uh, friends like John Gilgood and Gwen Franken Davis and Marta Van and mm. Martita Hunt. Mm. So number eight of the series, Sorry for the Dead, is due out in later this year, April, I think. Tell us something about the story behind that one. I haven't had it. There's not a lot online about that book at all at the moment, no. That's partly because it's been put back now to the autumn. It'll come out oh. in October, November time. Oh, okay. But yeah. it, it it was inspired greatly by the franchise affair and my love of that book. It is set in um, Sussex, which is a part of the world that Tay absolutely loved, and uh, it's it's partly set at Charleston, the fame, the home which went on to be famous as the part of the Bloomsbury set where Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant lived for many years. But it's at Charleston before it became famous as we know it. And you see Tay at three points in her life. You see her in the 1930s, as people who read my books will know and, and love her. Um, but it also goes back to 1915. So we see Tay as a young girl during the First World War and some of the things that went on to influence her life. And we also see how we move forward to 1948 when she's about to publish The Franchise Affair. In fact, we, we, we go with her to the launch party for The Franchise Affair. So it takes three points in her life and, and sees how different she is. Um, and of course, there is the murder mystery um, in the 1915 part, which has repercussions in the later time periods. Sounds fascinating. And I know you've mentioned that she wrote eight mysteries and this is going to be number eight for you. Are you are, is there going to be a number nine or are you going to leave it at that like she did? No, there's going to be a number nine and a number 10 because I've just signed a, a contract for two more. So there definitely will be will be 10. And oh, fantastic. I'm, I'm working on number nine at the moment, which it, it made me smile a minute ago where you said you don't do country houses and, and, and people sitting around solving this. This is actually sort of a country house murder with a difference at Christmas. So it's going to be a, a sort of riff on the golden age Christmas mystery. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Sounds wonderful. Uh, perhaps just moving away from the mysteries, you've got a standalone historical Stanley and Elsie coming out this year too. And I gather that's based on the unconventional family life of the artist, Sir Stanley Spencer. Uh, tell us a little about that. What genre is it? I gather it wouldn't be a mystery, but not a memoir either. Yeah, I think I think about this a lot, really. It's a, it's a straight historical novel. It And I see it as very much connected to the Tay series in the sense that it is a reimagining of a real figure in a particular time and place in the 1920s and 30s again. 
And no, it's it's not a mystery in a generic sort of way. But I've been thinking about how I approach the characters in that book um, and how I approach the ones in, in my mystery series. And basically, you know, it is about fathoming and trying to understand and trying to get under the skin of why people do what they do. And you said unconventional family life. I think most people would agree with you in that respect. And Stanley Spencer, as well as being a fantastic artist, a great, great artist, one of my favourite artists, um, he also did some things in his life that I think some of us would find hard to fathom. And that's exactly what you do when you write a crime novel. You try to understand why people do the things they do. And that's not just a motive for murder, but a motive for the everyday acts of love and jealousy and shame and greed. And so from that respect, I think it's not entirely different. It didn't feel so different when, when I was writing it. But it is a story that I've wanted to write about for several years now. It's inspired by um, Stanley Spencer's creation of a first, first World War Memorial Chapel, which he painted. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful place in a Hampshire village. Uh, but what really sort of was my doorway into it was a, a lady called Elsie Monday, who was the maid that he hired to look after his family when he went to that village. And she became a very important figure. She became a friend to him, a friend to his wife, Hilda Carline. And um, certainly to, to their children, a really important member of the family, as well as a muse for his work. So most of the book is, is told through her eyes. And hopefully to go again back to the themes of some of the Tay novels, it gives a voice to the women in Spencer's life who are usually the silent presence in his paintings. So it turns the tables on him a bit. Yeah, oh, that sounds wonderful. Look, turning to your wider career, you divide your time between Cornwall and Cambridge and Cornwall is almost your writing base I gather and when you're in Cambridge you've got a lot of other exciting things that you do and that's not so different from the way Josephine structured her life is that just a coincidence is that just how it works for you to have that dichotomy really you know I've I've never really thought it of it as having a connection to her but of course you're absolutely right it does I mean for for us for a practical point of view it is the contrast between the two places that is wonderful in Cambridge there's a lot going on as you say uh, it is a, a beautiful beautiful city with a great history and a great past but it's a very man-made beauty um the art and the architecture and the history of cambridge is phenomenal but when you get to cornwall it's a very raw elemental beauty and it is a different pace of life uh it's a different type of beauty and it's very inspirational in that sense yes now in cambridge you do a radio show with your partner mandy called the eclectic light show and that in itself sounds fascinating i must admit i haven't yet managed to listen to a full episode but I gather she does the music and you do the books and film reviews. And you've already had Judy Collins on this year. You draw some amazing guests. Tell us a bit about that show. Well, that show started, Monday worked for 26 years at the BBC. So it was a show that she started when she was at the BBC. She has a, a music background herself. She had a band called Spriggans, later the Mandy Morton Band. Uh, they recorded six albums and toured quite extensively. So she has a, a music and broadcasting background. 
Um, and uh, we really met through the radio and the theatre that I worked in. And um, I, I started to do pieces on her BBC shows relating to the theatre and various arts things. So it's kind of evolved naturally through that. And we do, we choose, she does tend to do the music, although this month she's challenged me to tell the story of Joni Mitchell through 10 songs. I mean, how do you choose jo 10 Joni Mitchell songs? I couldn't even narrow it down to 10 Joni Mitchell albums, I don't think. Uh, so I've got that on. And um, we do divide the others, but really we, we take on, what interests us and uh, the people who fascinate us and whose creativity we have a, we have a great respect for. So um, it does it does tend to sort of blur those lines of theatre, music, and books and art. But we 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 nab what we like to do each month. So tell me, just a little technical question: um, Can someone like me in New Zealand hear it? I mean, it's not it's not up there as a podcast, is it? Or is it a podcast as well? All our eclectic light shows are available um, on Mixcloud. So going back, oh, okay. if you go to Mixcloud and type in the eclectic light show, you will see all the shows that we've done over the past few years there, and they're there for people to listen whenever they like. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, I must admit, I did pick up on the fact that you had seeded London Rain with lots of Rolling Stones um, <laughs> references. And as I was going through it, I, I wasn't, you know, absolutely searching, but I did keep my eye out, and I think I only really picked up on a couple. Sympathy for the Devil and and a couple Wild Horses was another one. But yeah. you had a little game there with Rolling Stones. Obviously, that was one of your tracks you played. I gather while you were writing that book, I did. I listened to the Rolling Stones a lot writing that book, and it it sort of came from the fact that within my books, I like to mix different time periods I find that one age yeah. can be a fascinating mirror on another and so mm. London Rain for example the central death and mystery within that book is the death of a social club hostess who dies in the 1920s but it's actually based on the suspicions and conspiracy theories surrounding the death of Brian Jones the founder of the Rolling Stones in 1929 mm -hmm. so um, although and then once I sort of decided I'd do that it became obvious to me how much a mirror image of each other the 60s and the 20s are. They're generations coming out of a really, really difficult war. It's a time of underground clubs and music and, and, a, and a really thriving drug scene. And so I, I kind of like to do that. And I've done it recently in Nine Lessons as well, when I've taken a very 1970s crime, the Cambridge Rapist, and put it back to the 1930s. And again, those two periods seem to complement each other very, very well. But you're right. So it, it seemed just a, a fun thing to do for me uh, while I was writing that book was to sprinkle a few of those titles in and, and see how many people would notice. <laughs> Look, if there's one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret to success of your success, what would it be? Oh, that's a really difficult question. And in, in some ways, you'd be better off to ask a reader that than me. But if there's some of the things that I'm proudest of would be maybe the characterization and really bringing a richness and a credibility to those people. That's, that's what people tell me they admire about the books. But the thing I'm most pleased with is the fact that they entertain people. I mean, when people come up to me at events and say, They've read one of my books for a second time, for example. That's a huge accolade because 
in a crime genre, which is supposed to to depend on the act of surprise. If somebody reads your book twice, that's a great accolade. Or people have said the books have got them through cancer, perhaps, or something terrible time in their life, which a lot of authors, you know, will will cite as something very important. If people take your books to their heart in that respect, in and they choose that to get them through difficult times, that would be great. But you know, I think something that that is emerging is the sexuality of the women in those books. Um, Tay is having a a running affair with another character called Marta in these books. And I get a lot of letters now from people whose grandmothers or aunts or mothers um, face similar choices about being open about their sexuality or having to hide it. And some of them were brave and went with it and had a lot of prejudice as a, as a result. Some of it chose easier paths and maybe didn't ever have the happiness that they thought they might have. But a lot of people are saying that it's great that these books give a voice to those women because it was silenced. And I think that's important. And that's possibly part of the reason that Josephine kind of almost led that double life and was regarded as a bit of a lone wolf. She she obviously was very aware of the path she was treading, being honest with herself, but not laying herself open perhaps to too much public comment. Yes, I think that's true. I think uh, that was part of it. But I also think there was something inherent in her character that was a lone wolf. I mean, I, I think yeah. You know, yeah. There's, I, I would be the first to admit that there is a lie in her relationship with Marta in my books, but it's not the lesbianism, it's the closeness. And I think she, anybody who has read and loved the franchise affair like I do, and who knows Marion Sharp's speech to Robert Blair, I think will recognise a lot of how Tay felt in in that book. Mm, mm, mm. Look, we're starting to come to the end of our time together. Turning to Nicola as reader, This is called The Joys of Binge Reading, so we need to reference your reading a little bit. Now, I don't know if you really are a binge reader because you read so deeply that possibly the whole concept of binge reading is something that doesn't appeal very much. But tell us a little about your reading tastes. Okay. Uh, I'm ashamed to admit that since I started spending so much of my time writing crime novels, uh, I don't read as much crime fiction as I should do or as I used to, but um, somebody who I am, I, I can't binge read because she's not she's not fully in print at the moment, but a recent discovery of mine uh, is a book that Faber brought out in Christmas, uh, Celia Fremlin, and she is a wonderful author and they are bringing her books out. And, and I've had to have had to stop myself looking for them online and getting them because I would binge read her, but I actually don't want it all to be over. Um, I love, I'm sorry, if if you can hear a a little squealing noise here, it's not me, it's my cat, Betsy Trotwood. (laughs) We did just hear a little hint of that. So Celia, what what are her books like or what are they about? Is she a rediscovered classic, is she? She's another great psychological um, crime writer. She's a bit bit later than than Tay, Um, but she's great. I love Barbara Pym. I love Irish fiction. I love a lot of the. Um, I am an absolute fool for a Virago classic, Jenny. So a lot <laughs> of people like you know Rebecca West. Um, uh, who, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, Stella Gibbons. I love her work. Um, 
you know, it's one of the hardest things when, when people ask you what you read to, to come out with all these books. And I'm going to kick myself for forgetting some people, but they would be the people who most recently I have, I've loved their books. Yes, yes, wonderful. Circling back, looking across your life as, as it is at the moment, at this stage, if you were doing it all again, is there anything you would do differently? Um, do you know, I've been so lucky. Uh, I, have, I have a fantastic job that I love doing. I'm very happily married. I had a great upbringing and childhood. It would almost be churlish to, to say there'd be things I would do different. I suppose if there was one thing, I wish it would have been possible to cling on to the theatre job and the writing job for longer because at times I still miss working in theatre. Um, I wasn't on the stage. I was behind the scenes and in, in theatre marketing. But I love that sense of common endeavour and teamwork and all that sort of thing. Um, so if there was one thing I miss, it's that kind of camaraderie. Yes, yes. What is next for Nicola the writer? Uh, new projects that you're working on? Yeah, well, there's the, there's the Christmas mystery that I've told you about. Uh, and there'll mm -hmm. be a, a lot of promotion coming up for Stanley and Elsie and Sorry for the Dead. But I, I'll also be thinking about, I've got an idea for... Uh, another uh, historical novel that isn't a crime novel, another standalone novel there. So I'll be gradually starting to think about that as well. And uh, I'm going to start on, um, Mandy is also a crime writer. Uh, she writes a series called The Number Two Feline Detective Agency. And oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> they're wonderful, dark and funny books. And um, we are thinking of, well, we're starting to devise a series that we'll work on together. So that's in the pipeline as well. Oh, that's exciting. Now, do you like to interact with your readers and where can they find you online? Or do is it mainly through your appearances that you see your readers? I love to. I'm on Twitter. They can find me at Nicola Upson Book. I'm also on Facebook, but I am appalling at Facebook. I really don't go on as often as I should, but uh, Twitter is probably the way to interact on a regular basis. And I do love meeting uh, people at events as well. And doing, and doing blogs and having chat like this, I'm really enjoying this very much too. Look, it's been wonderful to talk. It really has. It's quite interesting to me how there's been a real blossoming of um, fiction related to this period that we've been talking about. And I think of a couple of the authors that I've already talked to that are writing books set in this period. It really, and, and I think it's interesting paralleled with the Me Too thing too, that there really is quite a, a sense of, of um, contemporary life coming out of that re-examination of the 20s and 30s. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. And, and long may it last because it is such, it's such an engrossing and interesting period because it's a, a period of such diversity too. Um, and I think the, lots of the women who worked quietly at their um, particular professions were so pioneering for the work that we do today. I mean, for... Um, the research for Sorry for the Dead, I read um, a, a book by Kate Aidy about women on, on the home front in the First World War. And it just shows in every single sphere of life, whether it's policing or farming or sport, uh, they really were paving the way for people like us who've come later. Yeah, yeah. Look, thank you so much for your time, Nicola. It's been a real pleasure. I will go and read some Josephine Tay. Actually, it's one of those things that because I have to do so much reading for this and for other things that 
I I honestly don't get much time just to do reading for pleasure, which I'm sure you might um, identify with. So it's it's ironic that a person who loves reading now, well, of course, the books I read for the podcast, I do very much enjoy. But just to have something I pick up just entirely for myself, I don't have much time to do anymore. <laughs> I tell you, that I'm, I'm quite envious of you, really, because I, I really wish that there was one finished Tay book that I hadn't read. You were in for such a treat. <laughs> That's wonderful. Look, thank you so much and all the best with this year and your writing. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you for your time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.